1 Corinthians chapter 15 tonight, the 15th chapter of Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 15, and we're just going to read the first eight verses together. And this is one of the clearest definitions of what the gospel is in all of God's precious word. And so tonight it's just very, very simply the old gospel message. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 1. The Apostle Paul records it in this great letter. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. God will bless the reading of his precious word to every heart. Let's pray together. Let's seek the Lord. Can we have all who know and love the Lord praying with all their hearts that the Lord will be glorified and exalted tonight and that our hearts might be blessed and that the Lord will have his way in this meeting. Let's pray together. Father, we thank Thee tonight for the gospel. And we thank Thee for the record of God's precious word. We thank You tonight for the power of the gospel. We thank Thee, O God, for the power of the word of God and for the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray tonight, loving Father God, that Your Spirit will strive in hearts. And that, Lord, if there's somebody here tonight who does not know the Savior, they're still in their sins, that the gospel will be proven to be the power of God unto salvation. And that, Lord God, thou wilt use thy word to open hearts and to bring souls unto thyself. I pray now for the help of heaven, for the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I pray that thou wilt hide me behind the cross and grant, Lord, that in the closing moments of this meeting that thy name would be exalted, uplifted, and glorified. Hear and answer prayer. And may our Savior see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied even now. We pray in his name and for God's eternal glory. Amen. You know, often if a person is trying to <coughs> emphasize a statement of fact, they will sometimes say, and that's the gospel, or that, that's gospel. Maybe they've heard some news and it's hard to believe and they'll 
with great enthusiasm tell somebody this news that they've heard, and then they'll end by saying, and listen, that's the gospel. That's gospel. And what they really mean is, that is absolutely true. I'm speaking words of truth, and they'll just use that phrase, and that's gospel, to drive home something that they are persuaded and is, are convinced is absolutely true. And so the, the word gospel has found its way into modern idiom and into modern vernacular as a word that denotes absolute truth. Now, we are living in a day like the day of the prophet who said, truth is fallen in the streets. And many tonight are not altogether convinced as to what the truth is or to where the truth might be found. Pontius Pilate, before he crucified our Savior, asked a question, he said, or asked, what is truth? And many tonight do not know what the truth is. And many are not sure where to find the truth. And many are not sure as they listen to the news and listen to social media and hear men and women speaking about a range of different subjects. Many tonight are not exactly sure what to believe or who to believe. And it seems that we're living in a day where truth is very difficult to find, especially as we go outside of the Word of God. And we're living as well in a day when there's a lot of confusion as to what the gospel is. I wonder if I was to ask you tonight as an individual, what is the gospel? How would you define the gospel? Even some of us that have been professing Christians maybe for many years, if somebody was to say to you, what is the gospel? And can you tell me what the gospel is? Or can you tell me where to find the gospel? I wonder tonight what your answer might be. Many people define the gospel in different ways. And we need to be very careful because the Bible says there's going to come a day whenever there will be the preaching of another Christ, the preaching of another faith, and the preaching as well of another gospel. But what is the gospel tonight? And what does the word gospel even mean? I wonder tonight what you would say if somebody was to ask you those questions. Well, the word gospel very simply means good news. You remember the night in which our Savior was born in Bethlehem and there were shepherds outside watching over their flocks by night and all of a sudden the sky was filled with the multitude of the heavenly host and there appeared an angel and said unto the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, we bring you glad tidings of great joy which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior which is Christ the Lord. And the words glad tidings there or good news we could render them those are the same words that are translated from the word from which we get gospel. So the gospel tonight is very simply good news or glad tidings. And you'll notice there as those shepherds listen to the angel that the gospel was the answer to all of their fears. Fear not, for behold, we bring you the gospel. And we are living in a world tonight that is filled with fear. The Bible says in the last days, men's hearts shall fail them for fear. But the gospel 
as the answer to the natural fear that resides in the heart of man. And the gospel as well is a very personal thing. We bring you glad tidings of great joy which shall be for all people. The gospel is universal, but the gospel is very personal. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior which is Christ the Lord. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have, I believe, the clearest definition in all the Word of God as to what the gospel is. Look at verse number 1. Paul says, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, and by which also ye are saved, if you keep in memory that which I have preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. And here's the gospel that Paul preached. Verse number 3. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. So the gospel was not something that Paul devised. The gospel was something Paul received. It's heavenly and divine in its origin. How that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that He was buried. And that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he was seen of Cephas, and then of the twelve, and then of above five hundred brethren, then of James, then of the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me. And friends, tonight, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. I want you to notice the four things that Paul highlights here as concerning the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the true gospel of God, the gospel of Christ, the gospel according to Paul, the gospel that saves. Notice, first of all, Christ was crucified. Christ was crucified. And beloved, tonight, that is gospel. That is not only part of the gospel, but that statement in itself, that's the gospel, that is gospel, that's true. I believe tonight as Paul and other men have gone about preaching the gospel, they could have said, listen, I've got good news for you. And it's very difficult for us to really grasp it. But listen, the Son of God died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that's the truth of it. That's gospel tonight. And that is the gospel. Christ was crucified. I declare unto you the gospel, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And if you take that little phrase there, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, I believe there are three wonderful truths in that verse or that text or that phrase for us to consider. First of all, Christ died. And that's history. Christ died. That is history. The fact and the gospel is that Jesus Christ really lived on this earth approximately 2,000 years ago. That's gospel. That's true. That's something that was real and something that is a historical fact that cannot be denied. Any honest historian and any reliable records will have it recorded that there was a man called Jesus who lived about Galilee, who was born in Bethlehem, who lived for a while in Nazareth, who went about doing good, who was a preacher, who performed miracles, and had uh, Mary as his mother, and Joseph as Mary's husband. 
And we cannot get away from the fact and from the gospel and from the truth and from the reality that Jesus Christ really lived. Every honest historian will tell us that there was a man called Jesus Christ. And any honest religion, whether their doctrine is right or not, but if they're honest with the truths of God's Word and they're honest with history, has to acknowledge that there was a man called Jesus Christ. Even those who do not believe He was divine and those who deny that He was the Son of God and those who deny His resurrection, by and large they will still have to concede and confess and admit that there was a man called Jesus from Nazareth who did some remarkable things, who made some remarkable statements, who lived a remarkable life, and who in many respects, more than any other figure, has influenced the history of life on this earth more than any other historical figure before or after. Josephus was a Jewish historian who, as far as we know, never came to personal faith in Jesus Christ. But even Josephus has to acknowledge that this man lived a remarkable life and did certain things that could not be explained on the basis of the human. Christ lived. That's history. And every time you sign a check, every time you put a stroke in a calendar, every time you write down a date, every time you turn a page over in a diary, every time you look at a calendar or look at the date on your watch or send an email or send a text message, and the date's recorded, it's a historical testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ lived. This is the year 2023, Anno Donami, the year of our Lord. And the great question is, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And furthermore, what will I do with Jesus, which is called the Christ? But Jesus Christ not only lived, but Jesus Christ died. That's history. That's what our text says. Christ died. And that's gospel. That is something that we cannot get around and we cannot deny. It's gospel and it is part of the gospel that saves. Christ died. That's history. He died by crucifixion. That's a fact. That's gospel. On a cross outside of Jerusalem, in a metropolitan city, nailed to a Roman cross, the Son of God suffered and bled and died, shed His precious blood, stripped of His garments, crowned with thorns, beaten beyond recognition. Christ died, that's history. But Paul says a little bit more about the death of Christ. He says, Christ died, and that's history. But he says, Christ died for our sins. Friends, tonight, that's theology. Christ died for our sins. He died for a reason. Now, anybody who's honest with the Lord Jesus Christ and honest with the biblical record will have to concede that this man was unique in that he had no sins of his own. He was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, pure, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens. The Scripture says he did no sin. 
The Bible says he knew no sin. The Bible says he was without sin. And the scripture says in him was no sin. He was the only sinless, perfect man that ever lived. And yet Christ died upon a cross or Christ died upon a tree. And that was a a form of death, a form of punishment that was laid aside for the vilest offenders and from the worst and for the most evil of men. The book of Deuteronomy said, Cursed is every one that hangs upon a tree. And yet the Son of God was nailed to a cross, a Roman form of execution. But it has reference to the Jewish form of punishment for the vilest offenders. Cursed is every one that hangeth upon a tree. Christ died, that's history. Christ died for our sins. That's theology. The little word for there means in place of, or instead of, or in room of, or as a substitute. The hymn writer said, He took my sins and my sorrows, and He made them His very own, and He bore the burden to Calvary, and He suffered, and He he died alone. And 700 years before the Lord went to that cross, The prophet Isaiah summed it up so well in chapter 53 and verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was laid upon him and by his stripes we are healed. Does that melt your heart this evening? Those of you tonight who say you've trusted the Lord and you're born again and you're redeemed and your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, does it ever really melt our hearts? When was the last time you got down in the secret place before the Lord and you just said, Lord, I want to thank you for saving my soul. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee all the pleasures of sin I resign. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Christ died, that's history. Christ died for our sins. That's theology. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that's authority. You say tonight, how can you be so sure that your sins are forgiven? How can you be so sure tonight as to what the gospel is? How can you be so certain that you're really saved and you're on your way to heaven and home? Because of the authority of God's precious word. I believe tonight the gospel is true, not just and not even primarily because of history, not because of how I feel, Not because some preacher or Sunday school teacher or well-meaning Christian told me that it's true. I believe tonight the truth of the gospel because the Bible says Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that's my authority tonight. Did you ever think about the diversity of Scripture? The Word of God is noted, of course, for its diversity written over a period of more than 2,000 years by some 40 different authors, some from different tribes, some living in different times, all of them with different backgrounds, 
all of them with different personalities, all of them with different characteristics. And yet there's a wonderful unity of theme, a wonderful unity of subject, a wonderful unity of detail, and all of the gospel writers, many of them never met each other, and yet they all agree in their testimony concerning God's wonderful Son and God's wonderful way of salvation. Somebody told a story years ago, and I take it to be a true story, four young men skipped an examination one day. They hadn't studied, they hadn't revised, and so none of them turned in. And whenever those four men got back to their class the next day, the teacher said, well, I'm going to make you sit your exam now. Why were you late, by the way? And they all says, well, we were, we were coming to school to sit the exam, and we were traveling in the same car, and then we got a flat tire. And that's why we were late and we couldn't make the exam because we were late and the, the teacher was a wise old man. He says, well, very well. He didn't ask any more questions. He put them in separate corners of the lecture hall. He put out the exam paper. And the first question in the exam paper was this. Which tire was flat? And they hadn't thought about that. And I looked it up in the scale of probability You've got each a one in four chance of getting it right, a quarter. And if you multiply 0.25 by 0.25 by 0.25 by 0.25, or you multiply a quarter against a quarter against a quarter against a quarter, you've got a one in 256% chance that they're all going to guess the same tire. One in 256 and that is four men thinking about one small subject. And yet, whenever you come to the Word of God, you've got 40 men approximately. Many of them never met each other, speaking about the life of Christ, the birth of Christ, the child that he came from, how he would live, how he would die, how he would rise again, the character of God. And all of their testimonies agree in theme, in subject, and in detail. And friends, tonight, that's gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Christ was crucified. That's gospel. That's true. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. But look what Paul goes on to say. He says Christ was buried. And that's also gospel. That's also true. And that's also the gospel. He says, Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. And then verse number 4, And He was buried. And He was buried. Now, if we turn back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, that we've mentioned already, in that chapter you've got prophecy, not just about His life, not just about his earthly ministry, not just about his atoning death, but you've also in Isaiah chapter 53 got prophecy concerning the Lord's burial. He was numbered among the transgressors. And it says in verse number 9 of Isaiah chapter 53 that he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. And the great prophetic chapter, Isaiah 53, makes reference, 
Yes, regarding his death, but also regarding his burial. And it also speaks there about the place of his burial. Now John chapter 19 and verse number 41 says, In the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And Mark's gospel says in Mark 15, 46, that the tomb wherein he was laid was a tomb that was hewn or carved out of a rock. The gospel narrative says it was a tomb wherein never man was yet laid. And so that tomb was a tomb that was noted and marked by purity. It wasn't a second-hand tomb. It was reserved exclusively and explicitly for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so you've got the prophecy regarding his burial. And that, again, is a testimony to the inspiration of Scripture. You've got the place of his burial not far from where he was crucified in the garden tomb hewn out of a rock. And we read that that tomb was sealed by a great stone and by a a guard of Roman soldiers. And then you've also got the person who buried him. It says in Isaiah 53, he made his grave with the rich. And the man who buried him was a man called Joseph of Arimathea. Matthew records that the Joseph of Arimathea in Matthew 27 and verse number 57 was a rich man. And so you see all of these little details that are given hundreds of years before the Savior was born and lived and died and was buried. Little details numbered among the transgressors, crucified as it were between two thieves, laid to rest in a tomb, buried in a tomb wherein never man was laid, by a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. And we read that Joseph of Arimathea, according to John 19 and 38, for a season in his life, had been a secret disciple of Jesus Christ for fear of the Jews. Any secret disciples in the meeting tonight? You've trusted Christ. You've believed in the Lord but you haven't really stood out from the crowd and publicly nailed your colors to the mast and said to this world of ours, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I believe that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me upon that cruel cross. But what a confession Joseph made whenever he went and he begged the body of Jesus from Pilate and then went to that cruel cross And the soldiers had been there before, and they had pierced his side with a a spear. And Joseph got his hands dirty and identified himself with the crucified Savior that the world hated. And all the while, he was a wonderful fulfillment of great prophecy. Then there's also the principle of his burial. Why was the Lord Jesus Christ buried? The Lord's burial was the final aspect of his humiliation. His humiliation consisted in his leaving the splendor of heaven, being born of a woman, born in poor conditions, having no place to lay his head, being despised and rejected of men, going to a cruel cross, suffering for sinners, shedding his blood, being put to an open shame, then dying and yielding up the ghost, and being buried. It shows us the Lord's great humiliation. 
It also, I believe, shows the Lord's will for the body after death. Burial seems to be the Lord's way that He reveals in Scriptures. But it also typifies the believer's burial with Him. Living, He loved me. Dying, He saved me. Buried, He carried my sins far away. Whenever a man or a woman becomes a true Christian, a true convert, and they really enter into the wonder of God's salvation, that individual dies to self. And they die to sin. And they are buried in a figurative sense. And the old man is buried and they are raised up to newness of life. I wonder tonight, have you died to self? I wonder if you died to sin. Leonard Ravenhill used to say there are only two types of people in this world. Those that are dying in their sins and those that are dying to their sins. Christ died for our sins. That's gospel. And he was buried. And that's gospel. And he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures and that's gospel. He was crucified. He was buried. He was raised. And that's gospel. Do you believe that tonight? The truth of his resurrection. Somebody said that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the best attested fact in history. Many have tried to deny it. Some have tried to divert people from it. Others have tried to dilute it. Some people say that whenever the Lord was on the cross, he didn't really die. He merely swooned and gave the appearance of one that was dead. Some have tried to say that he was taken off the cross before he had time to die, and then he revived. Some say that yes, he did really die, but he never rose from the dead. His resurrection was a fake, staged by the disciples. And then some have tried to say, well, he did rise again, but not in a physical sense, only in a spiritual sense or a metaphorical sense. And you can oftentimes test a person's orthodoxy whenever it comes to the gospel concerning what they believe about Jesus Christ. And all of the cults and all of the false religions will somewhere go wrong on the person of Jesus Christ our Lord. Some will deny his eternality. Some will deny his deity. Some will deny his sinful, sinlessness. Some will deny the vicarious work of the cross. Some will deny his blood. And others will deny his victorious, literal, physical, and bodily resurrection. But you cannot explain the resurrection any other way than what the Word of God says. That Christ literally, physically, personally, rose again from the grave the third day, according to the Scriptures. It's an indisputable fact. It's gospel. I wonder tonight, how do you explain it? I wonder tonight, do you really believe it, the truth of his resurrection? But Paul here speaks as well about the timing of his resurrection. Now, God's timing is always perfect. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son. That just means at precisely the right moment, God sent forth His Son. You've got the timing of His incarnation. The timing of His crucifixion. It coincided perfectly with the offering of the Passover. 
And then there's also the timing of his resurrection. He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. An Old Testament Scripture has a lot to say about the third day. Whenever God asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son Isaac that he loved and to go to the land of Moriah, to one of the mountains, and were persuaded that that's Mount Calvary, Abraham offered his son on the third day. It was a picture of Calvary. Whenever the children of Israel got to Mount Sinai, in Exodus chapter 19 and verse number 11, the Lord came down at Sinai on the third day. The Word of God records it in the book of Hosea, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, that on the third day God would visit His ancient people Israel. And Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and for three nights. And on the third day, Jonah was spat out. God's timing is always perfect. Paul here speaks about the truth of the resurrection, the timing of the resurrection, and also the testimony of the resurrection. He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now prophetically, the Old Testament Scripture spoke about His resurrection. Psalm 16:10, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. And historically, the New Testament Scriptures emphasize the resurrection as well. But what about the theology of the resurrection? Paul takes the whole body of Christian truth. And later on in this chapter, he turns it all on its head and pitches it, if you like, upon one point, and that's the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ from the dead. He says in verse 17, if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, and you're yet in your sins. The resurrection is absolutely critical. It's absolutely vital. Because it's through the resurrection that we see the acceptance of Christ's sacrifice. He was raised again the third day according to the Scriptures and then He ascended into heaven itself and the Bible says He went within the veil and He went within the veil by virtue and with His own precious blood and now He appears in the presence of God for us and His resurrection shows the acceptance of His sacrifice. And the resurrection also gives me assurance of my salvation. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Because I live, ye shall live also. I serve a living Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. And the resurrection also gives me assurance of his second coming. He's coming again to reign in the power of an endless life. Friends, that's gospel. Christ died. That's gospel. He was buried. And that's gospel. He rose again the third day. And that's gospel. But Paul also indicates as he brings this message as a word to a close, he says Christ was seen. And that's gospel as well. Verse number 5 says he was seen of Cephas. There's Peter. Peter, who denied that he even knew the Lord, was one of the first people to see the risen Lord in that resurrection morning. He was seen by Cephas. 
And then he was seen by the twelve, and that's a reference to the, the twelve gathered there in the upper room. Still called the twelve even after Judas is gone. It's speaking of the original disciples. And they all saw the Lord. He was seen of Cephas. He was seen by the twelve. Then verse 6 says, He was seen by a great multitude of about 500 brethren at once. Now it would be hard to call every single one of them a liar or deluded. How do you account for this? How do you account tonight for millions of people in our world that have trusted and experienced the grace of God in their lives? And then verse 7 says, He was seen by, seen by James, and that's our Lord's brother who wrote the epistle of James. And then he was seen of all the apostles down there by the Sea of Galilee whenever they had gone out fishing and they had toiled all night and they had taken nothing and the Lord came and stood on the seashore. And they all saw him. And then Paul says in verse 8, And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. A true biblical apostle was an eyewitness, a physical eyewitness to the resurrected risen Savior. Paul says a little bit later on, Am I not an apostle? Have I not also seen the Lord? And on the road to Damascus, Acts 9, 27, Paul testifies, I saw the Lord. Not only did he hear the Lord's voice, but he saw the Lord. And he was seen. Now there's coming a day whenever every eye shall see him. And every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But can I ask you tonight as an individual, have you ever seen him by faith? Have you ever beheld the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world? The prophet Isaiah, God says through him, Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and beside me there's none else. And that's the very text that Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, was converted through as a young lad in his teens, traveling to his church. Snow was falling. He couldn't make his normal place of worship. And he went to an old Methodist chapel and he sat at the back and there was only a handful of people gathered, maybe five or ten people. And the preacher couldn't turn up that day and an old deacon stood up and opened his Bible at Isaiah 45, 22 and just quoted the verse over and over and over and then pointed down at Charles Spurge and says, young man, you look miserable. You need to look to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And right there in that meeting, the young Spurgeon looked to the Savior by faith and was wonderfully converted. Is there somebody tonight in the meeting and you're not yet a Christian? You've never been converted. You've never trusted the Lord. Make this your night. Look unto Him and be saved. Look by faith in simple childlike faith. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Friends, that's gospel. If you look to Him, you'll be saved. If you trust in him, he'll forgive you. He'll cleanse you. He'll set you free. He'll restore you. Christ died. That's gospel. Christ died and was buried. That's gospel. Christ rose again. That's gospel. Christ was seen. That's gospel. But look at the Corinthian response. We're almost finished. Paul indicates that they heard the gospel. He says in verse 1, I declare unto you the gospel. He simply preached the gospel. He simply preached Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. 
And then they also not only heard the gospel, but they received the gospel. That is, they accepted it. They listened to it. They didn't just, just hear with their external ears, but they really listened and they received it and they accepted it as the truth of God. And then they believed the gospel. It speaks in verse number two about them believing. I wonder, have you ever believed the gospel? Not just in an intellectual sense and said, well, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was born and lived and died and was buried and rose again. But have you believed in your heart? Have you trusted the Savior? Have you turned from your sins and given your heart and life to Him and said like the old hymn writer, upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. I'm trusting Him as my Savior. I've given Him my life. Forsaking all, I trust Him. They believed the gospel. Then it says they stood upon the gospel. It was their sole foundation. And wherein ye stand. The book of Romans speaks about the grace wherein we stand. I tell you tonight, I'm not standing upon any merit of my own. I'm not standing upon a prayer that I prayed. I'm not standing on a date written in my Bible. I'm not standing on a denominational tiger flag. I'm not standing on a, on a profession of faith. I'm standing tonight on the validity of the gospel. And Ross Cousins wrote the words, I stand upon his merit. I know no safer stand, not even where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. I wonder tonight, is your foundation for time and for eternity the gospel of Jesus Christ? And then, of course, they were saved by the gospel. It simply says in verse number two, by which also ye are saved, saved from the power of sin, saved from the pollution of sin, saved from the penalty of sin, saved from the pleasures of sin, and one day saved by the grace of God from the very presence of sin. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day. Friends, that's gospel. That's truth. And if you receive the gospel and believe the gospel and stand upon the truth of the gospel, you'll be saved, and that's gospel. That's true. But can I tell you tonight that if you don't receive Christ as your Savior and you don't believe the gospel, and you don't stand upon the truth of the gospel and make the gospel your foundation for time and for eternity. Just as the Lord said to his audience in John's gospel, chapter 8, ye shall die in your sins. And where the Lord's going, you'll never be. And that's gospel, that's true. What will you do with the gospel? You've heard it so many times before. Simple truths tonight that we know so well gospel truths. But what will you do with Jesus Christ? Will you trust Him tonight? Will you receive Him? Will you stake your eternal destiny upon the integrity of the gospel? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Let's sing a few verses, please, of a closing hymn. 293. 293. In fact, there's just three verses in the hymn. We'll maybe sing them all 
and we'll stand as we sing. And if anybody needs help or prayer or counsel or you're concerned, or you've maybe even trusted the Lord where you sit, please speak to somebody about these issues and leave this meeting a new creature in Jesus Christ.